Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 8, will be our scripture reading this morning. Why don't you follow along as I read? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly, they rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from the one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I promise you this text won't be that heavy all the way through, but it is an important one, and it relates to This sound, I wonder if you recognize this sound. Listen carefully. Some of you are like, get the door. Someone's at the door. But listen again. Do you know what that is? S-O-S in Morris code. Hopefully, if you're ever stuck somewhere, somebody knows it better than you do. (laughs) I may not have done it exactly right. I'm not trained in Morris code. Three short taps, three long taps, three short taps. S-O-S. In 2020, three men were rescued from a deserted island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, not because they tapped SOS, but because they wrote SOS on the beach, and they were discovered after getting off course from a little ship that had blown off where they were intended to go. SOS, scrawled out on the beach, saved their lives. SOS is the universally recognized distress signal. Do you know what SOS means? Either save our ship or save our soul. You might compare it to the term mayday. Comes from the French word mude, means help me. Whether it's SOS or mayday, both of these words Symbols, these signals are used in moments of desperation. They are a signal, 
that I need help. Isaiah 59 is a spiritual mayday text. It's an SOS call for divine help, but the problem isn't being deserted on an island. The problem is human depravity. The issue isn't being deserted or lost on an island. The issue is a spiritual depravity that is stunning. Isaiah highlights the extent of sinful corruption in the world and in this chapter he points the people of Israel to God as their only hope of deliverance and rescue. And it fits with the overarching theme of the book of Isaiah that we've been looking at for a number of months now. The theme of this book is Our God Saves. And we're right back in the middle of that theme again. But in Isaiah 59, there's a little different nuance. And that is that when the days seem dark, God's people need to remember this truth. And here's the central thing the central message, the central idea of this sermon today, it's what you need to remember, it's what I need to remember, and it's this, that God can do what we cannot do. Again, God can do what we cannot do. Do you believe that? Let me help you to make it even a little bit more personal, that God can do what I cannot do. I want you to think about the last time when perhaps you made that statement. Maybe you can think of a crisis in your life, something that seemed absolutely impossible, a situation where you felt entirely helpless, and then God intervened. You knew that God could help you, but you saw it in a real and tangible way. In fact, one of the joys of a deep prayer life is seeing the way that God specifically marshals the resources of heaven in order to help us when we desperately need it. If you're here and you're a Christian, I want to remind you that your relationship with Jesus began when you embraced your helplessness. The first step in you coming to Christ was realizing, I can't do this anymore. Ephesians 2 puts it this way, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, there it is, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Grace is grace because people are helpless. Now, it's important to understand that our helplessness is directly connected to the presence of sin in us and sin in the world, and Isaiah 59 shines a spotlight on this issue of our individual and collective helplessness. So today from this text, I wanna highlight four considerations about this issue of helplessness. So if God can do what I cannot do, how do I understand what I can't do? And by understanding what I can't do, it helps to show me what God can do. Maybe that you're here today and you feel helpless. This text is gonna be a great reminder, friend, that God can do what you can't do. Others of you, if you're honest, you may not have considered your helplessness or you may not have considered your vulnerability like you should have in the last number of weeks. This text will be a good reminder. And there's others of us who, because of the brokenness of the world, just feel utterly weary 
This text helps us to know how do we think about a world marred and affected deeply by the presence of sin. So four considerations about helplessness. First, we find that helplessness is identified in verses one and two. So it's identified in verses one and two. He shows us this is the problem, our helplessness. Verse one, behold, it's a word that identifies that something important is going to be said. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This text begins by telling us first, what isn't the problem? The issue isn't because of some shortcoming with God. So the challenge that we feel, the gaps in our life, the tensions that we feel isn't because of somehow God isn't doing what he's supposed to do. The issue with our plight isn't a lack of power on God's part or a lack of compassion. Verse one makes two statements about God. His hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. So this hand shortened, meaning you're never at a spot where you're out of reach from God. There's no one in your life, mom and dad, there's no child in your life, no adult children, no family member that's out of reach from God's ability to be able to intervene. I've had an interesting experience the last number of weeks. I don't know what it is, but when I've gone into a grocery store, maybe it's because there's so few things that are on the shelves, that they're the back of the shelf. I've had more people ask me recently, hey, would you mind getting that for me? And I mean, I'm, it's no effort. I'm like, yeah, sure, you know? And so they didn't bring their stepladder, they just found me. And uh, so I, I never mind doing it, you know? And, And that's the point. You may see something in your life as the back of the shelf and you're like, I'm too short. And I'm not making this analogy to say I'm like God and you're not. What I'm saying is that (laughs) God then reaches in and like that's not a problem, it's effortless. God's never at a point where he's like, ah, I just can't reach you. You're, You're too far away from me. Nor is his ear dull that it cannot hear. You may feel like I'm praying and I just, I'm not getting the answer that I want. You need to know that that's not because of some deficit of compassion on God's part. Listen to me, there's never a time that you're out of reach from God and there's never a place when God doesn't hear you, never. That's not the problem. The problem isn't God's power or his lack of compassion. That's not the issue. And so what Isaiah does is he identifies what is the problem. Our distance from God is directly related to our sins. Verse two, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. He says that essentially, since God is holy, our rebellion creates a fundamental problem. And that problem is both individual and corporate. It's a problem that I have And it's a problem that we all have. And it's important to see this separation and the presence of sin playing out in two ways. 
Because at one level, sin is always individual. It's a personal issue. We individually are guilty of sins like dishonesty and greed and lust and anger and covetousness and self-centeredness and a host of other sins. And Galatians 5 warns us that individuals who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hard stop. That's true. You have to deal with your sin issues. I have to deal with my sin issues. But we also have to recognize that collectively as a people, our sins collude together and we sin in mass. When Adam sinned, the whole human race fell. So sin is an individual problem, but it's a human problem. Romans 3, text that we'll see again, Paul quotes Isaiah 59 and Romans 3 and Verse nine, he says this, what then, are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So notice that he, wide brush, everyone's under sin, and then he makes it personal and individual. No, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So you see what's happening when we're talking about sin, it's both an individual problem and a collective problem. It's what you and I do, and it's what the entire culture does. Which is why when Jesus returns, he's not just gonna save individuals, he's gonna take everything back. He's gonna take the earth back. He's going to take the government back. He's going to take the cities back. He's going to take the seas back. He's going to take every aspect of the created order because everything that's been tainted with the presence of sin needs to be redeemed. That starts with the summit of his creation, human beings, but it's representative that when Jesus returns, sin is gone everywhere. And that's important because sin at present has affected everything. This is an essential starting point in order to understand yourself, humanity, relationships, society, and culture. The problem in the world isn't God's inability to change things, nor is the problem his compassion. No, the issue is the presence of sin, and it makes human beings individually and collectively in desperate need of help. So as we start Isaiah 59, it is good to be reminded that underneath the challenges in our culture, underneath the brokenness in our lives, underneath the bad things that we do, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with us? It is that our sins have separated us from God. Charles Spurgeon said this, man as he is before he receives the grace of God loves anything and everything but spiritual things. If you need proof of this, look around you. There needs no monument to the depravity of the human affections. Cast your eyes everywhere. There is not a street nor a house, no, nor a heart which does not bear upon it sad evidence of this dreadful truth. We love that which we ought to hate and we hate that which we ought to love. That's not your neighbor's problem. That's your problem, that's my problem, that's our problem. Spurgeon says, it is but human nature, fallen human nature, that man should love this present life better than the life to come. It is the effect of the fall that man should love sin better than righteousness and the ways of the world better than the ways of God. The diagnosis from Isaiah 59 is this, humanity, apart from God's help, is helpless. He identifies the problem. Then secondly, in verses three to eight, 
Isaiah describes this helplessness. He describes it. He puts some additional color on it with six descriptions. He gives numerous examples so that we can fully understand the depth of the problem. Isaiah won't allow you to say, I get it, we're sinful. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, you think you know. But, but you need to understand at a deeper level, and he knows what we're prone to do as humans, which is to downplay our sinfulness, and as a result, he wants us to really understand what's going on. You might think about this in terms of how you approach getting sick or getting lost. For some of us, it takes way too long to admit that we're sick. Way too long to admit, I need to go to a doctor. Or way too long to admit, I need someone else to navigate. Isaiah doesn't want you to keep this brokenness at a distance. He wants you to see it clearly. So there's six examples. Number one, he identifies that our actions are broken. He says, your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity. He links their hands and their actions. Commentator Gary Smith says this imagery could represent actual involvement in violent crime against another person, or it could refer to people who facilitated the demise of others, sort of indirect involvement. Isn't it interesting that in the first generation of the human race, Adam and Eve, first generation, there's a murder. Next, our words. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. They were guilty of sinful speech as well. Their words were marked by half-truths or muttering wickedness, which is a term for malicious words designed to injure people. It's the kind of story that you tell when you talk about it like this. Don't tell anybody, but I heard... Keep this confidential, which means only tell one person at a time. <laughs> and we, we use our malicious words to injure people. Look at this. Remember, individual and collective. Number three, in verse four, it affects the legal system. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. The collective sinfulness affects how they resolve conflicts. That's what the legal system's designed to do. It's how do we resolve conflicts? Who wins, who owns what, whose rights have been violated? And what happens is our sinfulness colludes together and we can use the system against one another. We can use the system to take advantage of people. And what happens here is there were frivolous lawsuits, there was false testimony, they were schemes designed to benefit themselves. Aren't you glad we solved that in the 21st century? <laughs> Fourth, their accomplishments are marred. Verse five says this, they hatch adder's eggs and they weave spider's webs. What this means is what, what they do, they attempt to be productive only to have what they do prove to be dangerous. Instead of hatching eggs with chickens, they're hatching eggs of snakes. They offer to other people to eat their eggs and those who eat them die. And one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. The idea is you give your 
get an egg, and all of a sudden a big snake comes out of it. And the idea is that the best attempts of mankind prove to be destructive. Just, just think of all of the things, the amazing advancements, even in our own generation. Think of the things that we do that are just amazing and how easy it is then for those things to actually turn against us or for us to use those things for our own advantage against other people. Just one example, social media was designed to help bring people together. <laughs> it was designed to connect people, find people who have different, uh, same kind of viewpoints, let's bring them together, relationships, create this network. Amazing people with um, computer backgrounds can know how to program algorithms, and now you just turn social media and algorithms loose and look how wonderful the world is. Human advancement is always tainted by our sinfulness. Every time there's a new thing that humans create, we find a new way to use it for sinful purposes. That's not a dim view of humanity, it is what we do. We always bring our sinfulness with it. Fifth, our motivations are marred. Verse seven, their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation and destruction in their highways. Not only are we humans sinful, but we're quick to do it. We're creative in how we sin. We are proficient and effective sinners. Verse seven describes it as we're running to evil, swift to shed innocent blood, regularly thinking about iniquity. You ever had that where something comes across sort of your purview in life and you see something beautiful and then a wicked thought comes next? And you're like, ah, I hate this about me. It's part of what it means to be human. It's a symbol, a warning about how lost we are. For those of you who know the book of Romans, this text is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 and verse 17, and rather 15 through 17, where he says this, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their path is ruin and misery, and the way of peace they had not known. What's interesting is the Apostle Paul in the first century quotes Isaiah in the eighth century, and here we are in the 21st century, and guess what? This text is still relevant. You know why? Because humans are humans are humans are humans, that's why. Doesn't matter whether it's in the eighth century, the first century, or the 21st century, our condition is the same. We're helpless. And finally, there's conflicts. Number six, look at verse eight. The way of peace they had not known. There is no justice in their path. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. So our sinfulness leads to a consistent lack of peace. Conflict rules the day. Whether it's personal relationships, whether it's between communities, whether it's between political parties, between nations, everything human beings touch is marked by consistent conflict. Now, you may think, man, Mark, what's gotten into you? Brother, I'm just reading you the Bible. Like, this is, this is what it says, and it's, it's quite a list. I know it is. And it, it, it might seem really depressing, and it would be if our only hope in life was our ability to change the world. This would be really discouraging if you believed that it's up to you to make people better. 
It could be downright debilitating if you want there to be peace and justice and if you think it's all up to you. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a godly person. Doesn't mean that you should try and do what's right. Doesn't mean you should try and live, you should not try and live at peace with your neighbor. Doesn't mean that you should not love your neighbor as yourself. But we gotta start with the right starting point. All of that is important, but we have to start from a position of the human race is in trouble. We are totally depraved. This means that we take our sinfulness with us wherever we go. And it also means that it's a miracle when anything good happens. When there's a marriage that lasts 50 years, that's a miracle. When, when you hear the word and you receive it and you hear this and you're like, this is true, this is crazy. The Bible's getting in your grill. And for you to say, this is helpful. That's not normal. And it's only because of the grace of God. Can you just pause for a moment, Christian, and be reminded of where you would be if God hadn't helped you? Think of where you'd be. Think of how upside down the world would be, how completely topsy-turvy your understanding of yourself, your identity, your sexuality, your finances, your career, your family, your singleness. Like when Jesus comes, he takes over, and thank God he does, because we're in trouble. So he identifies the problem of helplessness, he describes it, Next, he mourns it. In verses nine through 13, there's a shift in the text. If you look at verse eight, you'll see the way of peace they do not know. And in verse nine, it says, therefore justice is far from us. So there's a shift from third person to first person, plural. Verse nine, and righteousness does not overtake us. The idea is that the people of God here, to some extent, are mourning. And it's not clear if they're mourning because of the circumstances of life have been distressing or if they're truly repentant. We don't know that. But what we do know is the fact of how broken their world is has become evident to them, and Isaiah is attempting to highlight it. And you'll see why, because this text ends with great news at the end. Notice, though, in the meantime, how lost they feel Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us in verse nine. Notice this, I love this imagery. Isaiah is an amazing writer as a prophet of God using illustrations that are so poignant. We hoped for light and behold darkness. For brightness and we walked in gloom. And then verse 10. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. The idea is like when you've woken up in the middle of the night in some place that you had forgotten, you, know, you, you stayed at a hotel or a, a friend's house or your parents or someplace and it's a different bed and you woke up at the wrong side of the bed and you're like acting like you're in your house. You ever had that happen? Well, what, what Isaiah is saying is that's what you're like, that's what we're like, but it's in the middle of the day. We don't know where to go, we're, we're lost. We are among those in full vigor we are like dead men. So he describes their spiritual condition in a very dark way. They, 
they need to take a careful look in the mirror. Isaiah wants us to know this is who we are. This is who we are. Verse 11, they are grieving. He uses other images. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. The idea is they, they, they see the brokenness of the world, the brokenness within them, and they're just like, ugh. Have you felt that way in the last few years? You look around and you're just like, ugh. Here are these people who are experiencing deep sorrow. Salvation, the way things should be, and justice seem very far away. And then they're completely overwhelmed. Look at verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against you. This may be a, a spot where we're starting to hear an acknowledgement of what's wrong and maybe even a level of repentance. Our sins testify against us. Isaiah, again, is using a, a court metaphor, and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. It's remarkable. These, these, these sins are testifying against them. Their iniquities, the denial of the Lord, their backsliding, their oppression, their rebellion, their deceptive practices. And this section is striking because of its emotional connection to their helplessness. It's not just that they factually know that they're helpless, they feel their helplessness. Ray Ortland says about this text and connects it to the pattern of revival when he says, revival thrives amid an honest reappraisal of ourselves and our weaknesses. Do you know what he means by that? Revival thrives when God's people can be honest. I need a lot of help here. What Orland is saying is the one group of people on planet Earth who ought to regularly say, not perfect, are people who know the grace of God because the starting point is we need a boatload of help. He says we can risk honesty with God because of the cross of Christ and his sacrifice absorbs our guilt. God has relocated us in his favor. It is now safe to get real with him. It's safe to get real with him. To be a Christian means that we mourn over our sin. We mourn over the sin in us and in the world. We don't hold the brokenness of the world at a distance. We don't become pharisaical. How could people be like that and how bad the world is? We know, like, I'm that bad. That's where I would be without Jesus. We've come to understand our hopelessness apart from God's help, that our collective rebellion is something that we bring close. We don't push it far away such that we find ourselves saying, the world is broken, I'm broken, the world needs help, I need help. Did any of that cross your mind this week? Because we're good at propping ourselves up by comparing ourselves to other people, by looking down. Anybody become a little judgy last week? Looking down your nose at people? Or is your perspective of what you see in the mirror informed by your understanding of how much help you really need? This text concludes with helplessness resolved. The tension is built. What do we do? What do we do? What's gonna happen? Verse 14, 
Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares. Sound familiar? Who do you believe on your TV? Who do you believe on social media? What news station do you follow? Everything's breaking news. Everyone's angling for clickbait. Editors creating moderately deceptive headlines so you will click on it because there's a financial motivation. No, who, who really cares about truth? That's a question, isn't it? Some of us are like, that's a new question. That's not a new question. <laughs> that's an old question. I used to look back at World War II, look at things that happened with propaganda and think, how in the world could an entire group of people just be deceived with propaganda? I know how. <laughs> It's crazy. So think back, how, I used to think, how in the world could such bad things happen in the world? And I've seen pictures where train stations in Ukraine in 2022 and they make it look black and white and they compare something with 1945 and like, wow. Not a lot has changed, church. For all of our advancements, for all of our conversations, for all of our ability to know what's going on in the world, Humans are humans are humans are humans. Verse 15, truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And then notice this, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw, really important, that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Get ready. This is a setup. He looks. And he sees the helplessness, and Isaiah says, God looks, and there's nobody on earth who can help helpless people. Notice the second half of verse 16, it sings. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. God says, I'm going to fix this. Because there's nobody on earth who can fix the problem with human beings. They're all lost. They're all broken. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. God's getting ready for battle. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands. He will render repayment. Those who got away with it are going to go, uh oh. And so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And then notice this and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Woo! No wonder Isaiah is quoted more than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament because the New Testament writers were like, I know who this is. This one is Jesus who comes to intervene in order to rescue sinners because they can't rescue themselves. A redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So the key for lost people who are helpless is to realize, A, I'm helpless, and B, Jesus can help me. This is the Redeemer who comes. And then look at verse 22, 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. 
My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And here we have the promise of the empowerment of the spirit that's going to come and that did come in the person and work of Jesus in the New Testament. After he leaves, the Holy Spirit comes in order to fill God's people with the empowerment that they don't have in themselves. And it's also the hope that that will be extended to generations of generations and generations, meaning the only hope for people who understand their own brokenness as they think about the concerns for their children and their children's children and their children's children's children knowing how bad humanity is, is this. God, by his spirit, can transform them from the inside out. It's unbelievable. Isaiah is pointing us to the person of Jesus, pointing us to the one who comes in order to do what we cannot do. So began the sermon telling you God can do what we cannot do. Here's it even more specifically, that Jesus can do what you can't do. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, does this make sense to you? Oh, I pray that it does. Do you see that the problem in the world is actually a problem that exists within you? If you're not a Christian, you need to understand that this is the foundation upon which Christianity is, this is the foundation upon which Christianity is built, or this is the core problem, that's a better way to say it, that Christianity seeks to address, that we need a redemption, we need a forgiveness, we need a cleansing, we need help, a help that we couldn't provide. Every good thing you do is tainted by your sinfulness. Go ahead and give a bunch of money away and in the back of your soul, there's this idea of I'm doing this so that I can really be righteous and in so doing, you negate the gift that you gave. So you give, but you don't give in order to earn God's favor because everything that you do is touched by subtle impure motives. Why do I do this? What's the reason? See, total depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be. It means that everything we do is affected by our sinfulness in some way. And the hope is this, that Jesus made forgiveness possible by his death and resurrection. And perhaps, if you're not a Christian, God is calling you to turn to Jesus today. Maybe you come into the sanctuary today or you're listening online and you're at a spot where you are helpless. That's step one. Step two is looking to Jesus. If you're a Christian, notice how helplessness is celebrated in this text. Do you know why? Because Christians are people who rejoice in inability. Let me say that again. Christians rejoice in inability. Do you know how freeing that is? The next time you run into something and you're like, I can't do it, just celebrate it. I can't do it. This is awesome. I don't know what to do. I don't know what's up. I don't know what's down. Embracing your helplessness is how the Christian life is lived. Freedom doesn't come from you figuring it out. Christian, it comes from God pulling you out. So instead of being frustrated that you don't know what to do, why not do this? How about you talk to God about asking him to do what you can't do? And for some of you, that thought is the first time that you've thought about it in about two weeks. And you're like, 
oh yeah, I should be praying about this. Some of you are in a position of helplessness today. You're in this room and you're helpless and this text invites you, Christian, to put your trust in God's ability to help you. He can do what you cannot do. If you're on a desert island and you have no ability to rescue yourself and you see a plane coming over top, nobody is gonna think poorly about you if you wave your arms like a crazy person. Help! I'm down here! SOS, Mayday, whatever, just land the plane, come and help me! Nobody would look at you and go, look at that idiot, he's just all emotional. (laughs) Nobody, why? Because you're on a desert island. Welcome to the island. Welcome to the desert island. Some of us need to say, God, I need a lot of help. SOS, help me. But some of us are so embarrassed by our helplessness, we've forgotten that we live on an island and we need God's help. Call upon him, ask him, because he can do what you cannot do. So talk. Lord Jesus, we ask for you to help us to embrace our helplessness. We don't like to be helpless. We don't like the feeling of insecurity that it creates. We we may know intellectually that it's true that we're helpless, but there's so much internal tension. So thank you that you're using this text even right now to minister grace to people who needed to know and to be reminded that you can help them. Lord, for those today who don't know you, who are yet to be Christians, Lord, let today be the day when they say, all right, Jesus, I'm done, I'm coming to you. Because you alone is the place where my hope is found. Mm. Lord, thank you for texts like this that are heavy, but are so full of hope. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.